Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneur's Chat, a podcast brought to you by Climate Ambrose. I'm James Hurley, Enterprise Editor at The Times, and I'll be your host for this series. From startup to sale, the course of building a business never did run smooth. And in this series, we go behind the scenes, exploring the highs and lows which come with building a business at every stage of the journey. What do Kate Middleton, Shakira and Angelina Jolie have in common? My latest guest has the answer. They're all among the celebrity customers of her business, Seraphine, an international maternity fashion brand. So the celebrity endorsement was the kind of a cornerstone of making the brand uh, known globally. And the first time that, uh, you know, I had a massive celebrity encounter was when Claudia Schiffer walked into the store. And at that point, she was followed by a horde of paparazzi who kind of stuck behind the, the window shop and took loads of pictures. It just made me realize that this photo had traveled on a website in Australia the next day and that kind of made me realize the power of celebrity and the power of PR and I wanted to harness it. Having started her career in advertising, Cecile Reyno saw a gap in the market after hearing complaints from colleagues about the lack of stylish maternity wear and so Seraphine was born. Cecile raised money from friends and family and business angels and started the company from a single shop in Kensington in London. Today it's a world famous maternity fashion label and an exporting powerhouse too selling to more than 100 countries around the world. Cecile sold Seraphine in 2020, so I'm intrigued to find out what came next. Cecile, welcome. Lovely to speak to you. Hello, very nice to speak to you. Thank you for having me with you. <laughs> well, it, it's a pleasure. And so I think we met a few years ago, didn't we, Cecile, back in 2015 when you were in the midst of growing the business. I will come on to, obviously, your inspiring growth and startup story. But I thought a nice place to start actually might be with your exit. You sold the business in, in 2020. You'd been building it for 18 years, hadn't you, having, having started with a single retail outlet in 2002. What's it been like for you adjusting to life after the sale of a business that you put so much of your life and energy and, and passion into? It's definitely a big change when you sell your business. I, I always make the analogy that it's like when you send your son to university. For me, actually, it worked really well because my son is going to university and, you know, 18 years of business is like bringing up a child. So there is a sense of, you know, pride, achievement. And at the same time, there's always that little sense of loss and, you know, it's definitely a transition. I would say that I was prepared for it because obviously going into the sale of the business, you know, this is something that takes about two years of preparation. So mentally, you are kind of ready. But having said that, being in the midst of the pandemic kind of threw a lot of curveball in the process and in the preparation, the timing. So, you know, that was a little bit difficult waters to navigate and a little bit unexpected. So I, I had to adapt. But entrepreneurs are born to be adaptive. You know, that's that's the one skill that we have. So it worked out fine. And I'm really happy that I can uh, mentor quite a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs and also uh, participate in a charity which helps women entrepreneur in uh, low-income countries, so a lot in Africa, and that's a very exciting role that I have there. So I'm enjoying that moment of giving back, and it's helping me letting go of my baby business. <laughs> 
Well, that's fantastic and really interesting. Those words you used there, loss and and, and uh, letting go, I think are, are really intriguing. I've spoken to founders before who've sort of privately told me that they found it really difficult to let go of their businesses and had to go through a sort of like mental process to, to do that. Have you got any advice, having gone through that yourself, that would help someone prepare for that if they're going through the process of selling their own business? Yeah, I think it's kind of prepare for an, an activity that follows from that, because if you're left without uh, much to do, we are so used to be uh, constantly on adrenaline and taking decisions, making things happen that you can feel a little bit uh, confused by this new, much slower tempo. So so prepare something, some ideas. I think for me, what was really important is to know that I was leaving the business in good hands and with people that I deeply trusted and also liked a lot. So whilst I decided to completely go, you know, I still feel that I have this link with these people that I worked with over many years and it's like a family still. And I think, you know, the concept of giving back to other entrepreneurs for me has been, you know, as much helpful for myself as I'm helping others, because when you give back, this always kind of energize you. And I make sure that in my days, I spend at least 30% of my day giving back. That's kind of my, my daily quota it makes me feel good. And I know I'm helping people as well. Before we move on to the Seraphin story, just give us a little bit of a flavour of some of the things you're working on. So you mentioned about working with uh, entrepreneurs from uh, low income countries and, and helping them on their on their journeys. Can you give us a, a flavour for some of the startups and entrepreneurs that you've been working with? Yeah, so this is through the Sherry Blair Foundation and I'm on the board of the foundation. And the idea is really to help sort of, I would qualify mostly ground zero entrepreneurs. So all females, uh, primarily a lot in the sector of goods and services. This is really like the start of entrepreneurship that will, for these ladies, really change the outcome of their family, their ability to support their children, to educate them, to give their families a better life. And the concept of the charity is that A, gives a platform where you can, you know, draw a lot of tutoring and, you know, help on how to do basic things such as marketing and, you know, pricing and doing your balance sheet and so on. And then it creates this phenomenal network of mentors. So, you know, it pulls a resource of mentors, obviously, in primarily in the UK, but also in America. And these people are paired with the entrepreneur with the idea of, you know, once a month, at least having a one hour conversation. And it's really motivational. And for me, it kind of really drew back to my experience where when I was, uh, you know, at ground zero startup, I felt that actually the most helpful. I could have was very psychological from people telling me this is great you know this is exciting do it you can make it happen so you know I think it, it works really well in in that way so I am myself in this case uh, mentoring a lady who is in Bhutan who's opened her first cafe uh, but also I'm participating in the broader sort of strategy communication and fundraising of the charity which is exciting. That's fantastic. And, and to use your phrase, ground zero startup, let's hear a little bit about your ground zero story. So uh, I think I'm right in saying you moved to London, having graduated from business school in Paris, didn't you? And you worked for a little while in advertising. Well, where did you get the idea for Seraphin from? So basically, after graduating, I um, was in advertising and I spent nearly seven years working for big ad agency, which I, I loved. And it was kind of my career of choice at the time. 
Uh, and in fact, you know, it was quite a female-led industry with lots of women having children at that time. And so I could see the struggle of a woman having a career, needing to present the client and look professional whilst being pregnant. And I could see that, you know, there was really a lack of offering. Uh, and actually, because I was Parisian and I like fashion, a lot of my colleagues were telling me, help, what, what can I do? How shall I get dressed? So that really kind of sparked the realization that there was this market gap and you know I went and looked what was happening in America because of course they tend to be always a little bit ahead of the curve and realized that market was really well developed so that gave me the comfort that they you know it, it would be a market that could do well in the UK and, and probably in the rest of Europe and at that time I was 29 I quit my job uh, and as you do when you're young, you're full of optimism and, you know, energy. And I, and I sat in this industry and I had no background in fashion whatsoever other than my, you know, my particular liking of it. So it was a very steep learning curve. Uh, I had to, to really learn in every aspect. But what did help me was a that business training that I had. So I had a bit of a solid foundation for how to run a business and be all the experience in the advertising, which kind of gave me a lot of strength in marketing and PR. And that that was kind of the strong pillar. And I, I kind of then built the knowledge of how to, you know, create collection, how to become a retailer. And also during that time, it was a very new era of e-commerce where, you know, I, I could say I was one of the pioneers of e-commerce um, because back then very few people were doing that. So it was also, you know, an immense kind of challenge and fantastic. And for someone like me who wasn't particularly tech savvy <laughs> at times you know I could I could think that this is a mountain and I'm not going to be able to climb it but fortunately I partnered with with wonderful people recruited a great team and all together you know we, we managed to then become quite an important leading force in e-commerce and certainly within the maternity wear sector. But when I think of uh, your business, Cecile, I always think of two things. I think of one, e-commerce, as you say, and the other thing I think of is exporting because it was a real exporting success, wasn't it? You, you did very well in it, everywhere from Japan to the United States, of course, closer to home in, in Europe. And I remember you saying to me that I, I said, well, how have you managed to do well in Japan and even the United States as well, places where often private British companies really, really struggle to do well. And again, you spoke about the importance of partnerships. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, your philosophy of working with people who've got expertise when, when you need to plug gaps, maybe in your own knowledge? So, you know, export came quite naturally because, as you can hear, I'm French. So, you know, it was quite a natural for me to start going to France as a second market. And from that, you know, a lot of the European markets sort of uh, kind of happened relatively quickly. Uh, we had the benefit of being a niche provider. So actually a lot of companies did come and knock on our door. So we didn't always have to go as far as trying to find the right company, be it in Japan or in Australia or, you know, Russia and, and later in the States. Uh, because we had that benefit that people heard about the brand through all the marketing uh, and the PR that we were gaining. 
and, and ask us. So that was very beneficial. Later in the development, I decided to really go to America. And this for me, you know, I think for, uh, you know, British entrepreneurs is, is always, you always think this is going to be my first port of call because, you know, there is no language barrier and it feels like I can understand this culture. But however, this is a gigantic market and it is full of barriers, uh, trade barriers, you know, import taxes, uh, lots of logistics issues and so on. Um, so when I entered that market there, I really wanted to do it right. I was petrified that I would, like a lot of brands have done, fail at it, you know, go for it, lose a lot of money and come back with our tails between our legs. So, you know, I, I did uh, create a partnership actually with a player in America called Destination Maternity that was the leader, that leader that I had market research, you know, right at the start of launching Seraphine to, to validate the fact that there would be a market. And, you know, it was a, quite a bullish decision because in a way they were my direct competitors. So to create an alliance with them could have been tricky, but I decided that it was the right way. And it did uh, help enormously because suddenly we were distributed throughout their 200 stores across the US. It kind of gave us a real springboard for brand uh, recognition and it was the right move. So definitely sometimes you do need to have these kind of strong allies and you need to think a bit outside the box and not necessarily think they're my competitor, therefore I should steer away from them. And do you think your experience of working in the United States and, you know, negotiating things like trade barriers, as you said, and a, a very large kind of slightly dis at times disjointed market, I think, meant that you were kind of well placed to negotiate Brexit when that came along, perhaps better placed than some other companies? Yeah, I think definitely maybe it was more my sort of European conscious that, you know, when Brexit happened, I took it at heart, you know, as a European. So I felt like a great deal of concern beyond my business. You know, it was almost an emotional response. And therefore, it was constantly habitating my mind that how are we going to navigate this? And, you know, actually, we did toy back and forth. Should we move our warehouse or not? You know, what to do and so on. But then actually, the picture drew itself quite clearly because as a business, we were exporting 50% into Europe. So we started to realize that this is actually a, you know, Europe is our biggest market and we can't afford to, to have an issue distributing. So actually back in September 2019, uh, we took the decision to move our entire operation in Europe. And it was, you know, something that I cannot say I didn't agonize over and had a lot of sleepless nights about thinking, is this the right thing? Because maybe we're not going through a hard Brexit and it's, you know, it's going to be a lot of money invested and work for, you know, that may not be necessary. Well, it turns out that we did go for a hard Brexit and a lot of retailers were left in, in quite a limbo after January 2020. So I think I didn't regret that decision. Yes, it was another case of, you know, better be prepared for the worst <laughs> and ready for the worst outcome. And I think that's, you know, something as an entrepreneur, you are constantly juggling, do I have to invest for the what if uh, kind of scenario or, or not? Or can I just kind of continue to wing it and hopefully it's going to go through? Uh, so always difficult times of judgment. But in this case, I'm glad we, we took that decision.
So this very international, uh, very online business that, that you built in Seraphin began, of course, in with a single shop, didn't it? And I remember you telling me that when we spoke before that in your early days, Paul McCartney came into the shop with his then wife, Heather Mills. And I think you had some Japanese customers in at the same time who were very impressed by this. And after they'd left, they sort of came over to you and said, oh, well, we'll have what they bought. <laughs> I wanted you to tell me a little bit about how important that kind of celebrity endorsement has been for you as the business has grown, particularly as you you make so many sales online so the celebrity endorsement was the kind of a cornerstone of making the brand uh, known globally and it was really something that i actively pursued i mean it did start with that first store was in notting hill in a very prime location you know with lots of celebrities around and the first time that uh, you know i had a massive celebrity encounter was when claudia schiffer walked into the store and at that point she was followed by a horde of paparazzi who kind of stuck behind the, the window shop and took loads of pictures. And the next day, there were reports on the internet. Now, nowadays, we would think, yeah, that's quite normal. But back then, you know, the internet was still something kind of a startup kind of a phase. And it just made me realize that this photo had traveled on a website in Australia the next day. And that kind of made me realize the power of celebrity and the power of PR. And I wanted to harness it. So, you know, at first there were celebrities just happening to come in the store. And yes, that story of Paul McCartney is particularly funny because in the end we all had, he, he even paid with a check. So we had a signature and we were like, we don't want to bank it. We want to keep it. It's so cool. <laughs> so we did take a copy. Um, so, you know, after I, I kind of continuously seek that, you know, celebrity endorsement. It did culminate, obviously, with the Duchess of Cambridge, who really loved our product and wore our dresses and coats on so many official occasions. And it really gave us that British seal of approval, which is liked so much uh, abroad. And it really did help us with our internationalization. But also I was quite careful to ensure that we had a breadth of celebrity who loved the brand. So it was going from, you know, a rock star like Shakira or, you know, as well as actresses. And so we had that broad spectrum uh, with different styles. So, you know, Gwen Stefani rocking a pair of leather leggings is very different to, uh, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge in a formal coat. I was very keen to to give that broad appeal so everybody could find their muse and think, OK, I want to dress like her. And tell me a little bit about how that feeds into pricing strategy, because, you you know, you might at first glance assume seeing a celebrity in a certain item would mean it's very, very expensive. But you were keen to make this business very accessible, weren't you? Tell me a little bit about how that fed through to your pricing strategy. Yeah, the pricing strategy was really key uh, because of maternity clothes having a relatively short lifespan. You know, women will buy them around three months of pregnancy and and finish obviously at nine months. Although later we did develop a lot the whole nursing aspect, so the post-maternity clothes. So a lot of our clothes were transitioning into the two phases, which meant that they would have a bit more longevity. And plus, our idea was very much that you'd like the clothes so much you'd continue to wear them after pregnancy as well, which which did happen at times. Um, but so that idea of affordable luxury was really key because I, I felt genuinely that women were not going to spend so much money on a, on a short term wardrobe solution. 
but at the same time keeping the aspirational part uh, so that people felt like it is worth spending that little extra money to buy clothes that are designed specifically for maternity instead of going to, you know, uh, an H&M or a Zara and just buying a size bigger that doesn't really fit very well, doesn't have the technicality offer that we had. And I think that was our success because within the competition, we had quite a few more premium brands um, that kind of didn't manage to grow as fast as we did, uh, primarily because of, of the pricing. So it, it was obviously a high challenge to deliver a, a good quality product, a unique design at a relatively affordable price. And we had to source goods from all over the world and, and really build very strong, um, you know, relationship with our suppliers over time to enable to have the sufficient margin yet the quality. So, you know, those were very big challenges, but I'm glad to say that we, we work with great people and, and it did work out that people always felt the quality was very high and yet the price were very affordable. We had stores, you know, very well positioned in, in New York, in, in Paris, in London. And I always made sure that I wanted the store to look like expensive and beautiful and glamorous because I wanted to attract those celebrities to come in. But a lot of the customers would come in and turn the price tag and say, wow, my God, this is this is really affordable, you know? And they, they were like almost shocked at the fact that you can give that great service, that great uh, store environment and, you know, uh, celebrity endorsement and yet be very affordable. You mentioned earlier that you've achieved all this without any formal training or, or background in fashion, apart from maybe the fact that your grandfather ran a textile factory, didn't he, which supplied the, the likes of, of Chanel. But did, do you think like not having a fashion background was an advantage or a disadvantage when building this business or, or perhaps a bit of both? I think, you know, probably more disadvantage, I would say, because, you know, I had to, to learn a lot. But I guess that the positives was that when people told me it's not possible, I kept pushing harder because in a way I had no clue what's possible or not possible. So I kept saying, no, but I'm sure we can find a solution. And really it forced me to think outside the box constantly, which is something that as an entrepreneur is really important because this is how you outsmart the competition and achieve things that other people have failed to achieve. So Yes, it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but I would say in the early days, I wish I had that experience because it was quite a ride. <laughs> but later, yes, it, it kind of my my uh, you know my uh, ability to uh, push harder and make things happen came from that sort of naivety in a way of the sector. As you say, it has been quite a ride from a, from a single shop to you know selling the business in a in a fifty million pound deal. What would you say has been the most challenging part of building and and growing and then indeed selling the business? What's been the biggest hurdle that you've experienced on this journey? The biggest hurdle is always uh, finding good people and creating great teams because you're only you know the tip of the success and without a great team that there, there isn't success and. Finding those right people is, is very difficult because you need a balance of really skilled people, but people that, that love this kind of entrepreneurial, go-getter, slightly chaotic atmosphere. And it's not easy to find, you know, people that, that like that, because if you go and pick people from bigger businesses, they often sort of dislike that high speed, uh, you know, and constantly challenging environment. And if you pick 
people from smaller businesses, they, they like the know-how. So it is really hard to find the right people. Um, you've got to also get on with them and like really think that these would be people I could be friends with. For me, there was quite a bit of trial and error, um, so it didn't always work out. But, you know, as I matured and, and grew uh, over the years, I kind of learned to detect more the type of people to be less about being impressed by a CV, but rather really looking at the personality of people. And so for me, you know, that was always the most challenging and at the same time, the most rewarding, because when you found someone that that works out uh, and indeed, I, you know, I had like people who really grew with the business over the years, that is extremely satisfying uh, in terms of selling the business. This was a sort of two pronged process in the sense that I first uh, sold a majority share to private equity, to Bridgepoint private equity in 2017. So at that time, you know, as an entrepreneur, you are always told you're going to sell your soul to the devil or, you know, you're going to lose control of your company. And so, you know, you are a little bit petrified about it. But for me, actually, I was very fortunate to come uh, across, you know, the wonderful team of Bridgepoint and I saw them as my allies. I saw them as people that were really backing me off, encouraging me at the same time as giving me some expert advice. And it did work out very well. It enabled the company to really sort of power the growth even faster to set ourselves even more aggressive growth and profitability targets. So, you know, it was a very positive partnership. Once I, you enter that kind of partnership, you know that there's going to be another exit because that is the requisite of private equity. They come in, they stick around for three, four, five years, and then they want to turn their investments. So in our case, it took four years to um, decide to, to, you know, to actually complete the, the sale and, and my personal exit. But again, I would say it was a very good kind of um, partnership during that exit that that would be my my sort of learning is like you prepare a lot of these this kind of events you mentioned the moment there's some great recruitment tips and you, you talked about people growing with the business and trying to to find them i wondered if that was your experience as well did you find you had to for example change your management style as you went from startup to a growing company to to a mid-sized business really how did that change for for you as an entrepreneur and, and what tips would you give to others who are going on that journey Actually, I think that my management style was probably the same throughout, you know, which was always kind of a very friendly, very empowering. I always wanted people to come up with ideas and make sure that we made their ideas happen. You know, it, it felt more like a family. So I don't think that I changed much. The only thing is, you know, towards the end, we were 100 people. And so then you don't know everybody so well. So that that is the, the difference is that you kind of end up with tiers of people that are newcomers and you don't have so much direct contact with them. But I try to keep that uh, company ethos and positive vibe for me. That was the key to success because I always thought, you know, when you're a young company, you cannot offer as many perks, sometimes not even the, the best salary. But what you can offer is a working environment where people love to be there, where they feel they can thrive, where they have real opportunities to uh, grow their skills and grow their you know, responsibility and salary really fast when they deliver well 
And so, you know, that that is what attracts people to entrepreneurial businesses versus a big business, which gives you more safety and more perks and, and maybe a bit more, you know, a check at the end of the month. But where you more number, uh, whereas in an entrepreneurial company, people are, are definitely um, highly valued and they can, you know, push the door of the founder at any time of the day. Now, you've got a family of your own, haven't you, Cecile, which presumably gave you an opportunity to to model your own clothes, which is fantastic. What was it like balancing trying to run a growing business? And uh, I think I recall from you telling me before at the beginning, you were really in the thick of that startup stage when you were pregnant with your with your first child. What was that like? You know, that's an intense experience anyway, but actually trying to manage a growing company at the same time. that, That must have been tricky. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, definitely very tricky. And I, and I do tend to say to entrepreneurs, don't do what I did, which is to <laughs> become pregnant in the first year of launching your business. <laughs> Not a good idea, you know, believing that your baby is quietly going to uh, sit <laughs> by your desk and you'll be working away while, while he naps. That didn't happen. And it was quite a shock to me. So definitely these were very difficult, uh, rocky times. And, and I do also say it because I want people to know know that I actually suffered a postnatal depression during that phase. So, you know, it was very difficult, but, you know, in the end it was surmountable. And uh, after that, things, things got better. And, and really it sort of taught me that I cannot be the perfect mother and be the perfect entrepreneur. So I have to, you know, allow things to give uh, in both uh, departments uh, certainly in the earlier days. Uh, so what that meant is set myself realistic goals on the entrepreneurial side and on the mother side, you know, get help and also agree that I'm not going to be that perfect mother that is at the school gate every uh, afternoon. You know, I just can't. So I have to accept it. And, uh, you know, either I choose that path, otherwise it's not going to work. So I think you do have to to make choices um, but you have to be at peace with those choices. How long did that period last where you where you were struggling with that? And, and, and tell us a little bit more about how you got through that. What sort of resilience did you need to draw on to survive that period? Yeah, I mean, the, peri- the, the kind of depressive episode probably lasted about six months, but then it took probably another year for me to be fully back to the person that I felt I was before. You know, it was very much like I had put so much in the start of this business, raised some money from investors, you know, uh, taken obviously a step out of my career that I felt like I have to make this work, you know, and I really pushed myself every day. And, you know, sometimes it was a real uh, mental struggle. But I have to say that, again, back to, you know, great people surrounding me, my team was very small. I had probably two or three people, but they were all nice people and they just got me through the day. And I felt like I owe it to them to make it work because now these people have kind of trusted me and taken, you know, the jobs. They are on board. I need to be there for them. So that was kind of helpful to to pull me out of that 
difficult start where you're learning to be a mother, which is probably as steep as a learning curve as being an entrepreneur. And at the same time, learning to be an entrepreneur in a field that you don't know. So I had these kind of two colliding (laughs) learning curves. Uh, That was a little bit extreme. But, you know, after that, once you, you have overcome this, of course, you know, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. And it sort of gave me some inner strength that even when, you know, it's very tough, I I could do it. So, you know, later, uh, for example, in 2008, where there was a massive financial crisis, it also uh, coincided with the birth of my second son. So, you know, this was, again, very challenging times. But I could draw from that kind of knowledge that, you know, I went through that first storm and I sailed and I survived. So I'm going to do that again. People say that the, the, the biggest attribute of entrepreneurship is grit, you know, ability to kind of just keep going even when it's not going in your direction. So I think that's, uh, that's what I try to do. <laughs> that's fantastic. And do you think experiences like that are why you're so interested in and, and, and passionate about supporting early stage women entrepreneurs? Absolutely, because I think that, you know, that kind of the the moral aspect support is is very key. And, you know, when I started my business, there were less women entrepreneurs, certainly than now. Uh, So I was one of of a few, I would say, even now, you know, in the sector of accomplished uh, multi-million pound type of business, I am still a minority. I always felt that, the, the, you know, any encouragement, advice that were given to me was just that little extra help because I didn't necessarily have the male network and I always felt a little bit like the, the different person. So I'm really keen to give back in that respect. And, you know, and I had a couple of sort of mentors and people who took time to to give me some advice, some encouragement. And, you know, I cherish that a lot. So I feel it's my duty to do the same now. It's really interesting hearing you say that because I've looked at some numbers on this and there's certainly no shortage of businesses that are started by women. But as you rightly say, businesses like yours that have gone on to raise money from venture capital or or private equity and then have a multi-million pound exit, those numbers aren't the same as male-owned businesses. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it's a multiple of, of reasons. I mean, there is the the self-confidence, which tends to be a bit lower. Uh, there is the kind of networking. There is the factor of having children, which is very disruptive. And I think also it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that private equity does tend to uh, favor male investment. I think it is really changing. But uh, as of two years ago, I remember this staggering statistic that for every pound invested by private equity, only one P went to a female led company. You know, it gives you a good measure. But I have to say that I am seeing this landscape changing really fast, very encouraging, certainly with my interaction with Bridgepoint, I could see that they were very much wanting to back female entrepreneurs proactively. And, you know, and and that change of mentality is very helpful. And also it's like having the right role models. For me, I, you know, I did look at people like, say, Tamara Mellon, who created Jimmy Choo. 
and she was a you know a role model but i think we need role models at different levels as well because not everybody can become a tamara mellon so you need that kind of mid-level role model and and certainly you know podcasts and and interviews of other entrepreneurs are the kind of thing that made people think i can do this for me, I told you at the start of our interview that I, I went to uh, research this American company and had actually been created by a woman back then. And this is we're talking like she created it in the 80s and she wrote a book and I re- read the book. And after reading that book, I thought, OK, she did it. I can do it. You know, and it was very much that just what I needed to just tip my confidence Um, Because I think, you know, that is a reality still, whether it comes from our education, from our hormones, from our networks, I don't know, but we're female are are a little bit less confident generally. Well, you're doing a great job of being that role model as well, I think, Cecile. So one final question, and thank you for an absolutely fascinating conversation. What does the future hold for you? Maybe you could write a book to inspire others or or, uh, indeed might another startup be on the cards? Yes, I think uh, probably another startup will be on the cards, um, but I am pacing myself. I've decided that for certainly in the next two years, I'm going to hold back. Um, so, you know, I have one one son who is 13, so I feel I have, you know, that little window to really focus on being the perfect mother, which I wasn't always. (laughs) But yes, I think as an entrepreneur, you are always budding with ideas and I am sure one is going to come to fruition. Uh, But at the same time, I do want also to keep time to keep giving back uh, through supporting charities, you know, not just with money, but also with time. So that's an important aspect of how I envision uh, the next uh, certainly decade for me. Plenty to keep you busy. Cecile, thank you so much. Thank you. Cecile, thank you for joining me today and for giving such an honest insight into the personal side of building and indeed selling a business that you created and nurtured for the best part of two decades. Well, that's it for this series of The Entrepreneur's Chat. If you've only recently joined us, you can always scroll back in your podcast feed to hear words of wisdom from other intriguing entrepreneurs. While you're there, click the follow button and you'll be notified as soon as we're back. Until then, goodbye. Does running a business leave little time for managing your personal financial affairs? At Climate Hambros, we know how to simplify life's financial challenges for entrepreneurs. Considering your personal and business ambitions, we partner with you at every stage of your life, taking care of your finances so you can focus on what matters most to you. Find out more about how we can help create a secure financial future for you and your family at climatehambros.com.